Welcome back to the last episode in this season of The Spill from Image.ie. I'm your host, Sophie White, joined by my lovely co-host, Rona McAuliffe. Like the way I promoted myself and demoted you in that sentence. I love it. I love it. Uh, so, for our final chat, we are going characteristically peppy and discussing why we all love to hate. We hate watch, hate follow, hate read, I hate eat. Uh, more about that later. Um, we're all high on hating. Um, we're also going to give our latest uh, cultural recommendations to tide you over until the spill returns. Uh, but first, we're going to chat a bit about what we've been reading on the internet this week. Yes. Hit me, what have you been reading? Have you ever read the sex diaries in the cut? What the hell have I been doing with my life? No. Okay. Oh my God, I'm in. Yeah. So I, I don't subscribe to The Cut, uh, which I'm now, I'm considering doing it, uh, but I wouldn't read more than five articles a month. If I read more than five, I have to do, to uh, subscribe. So I have read five sex diaries, um, which basically they invite people to talk about their sex lives. So it's like a seven day, it's a seven day sex life diary. Um, obviously, I'm thinking from the kind of people that they're featuring. So they'll have kind of um, like a divorcee, like a 50 year old man um, who's kind of in a new relationship. So he'll talk about his sex diary when he masturbates, his like kind of um, his grooming rituals. Um, uh, then, there's, yeah, there was a 30 something group where that she wanted group sex for her birthday. She's constantly on field.com, like sourcing kind of new partners. Um, and then there was another one with a, an intern uh, who had had a, shu- a sugar daddy through university in oh, yeah. cities. So she just moved to New York and she was looking for a new On sugar daddy. So crawl. she was basically interviewing for new sugar daddies. <laughs> so this. obviously these are people who are very, uh, you know, you're not going to submit a sex diary or even pitch a sex diary unless you're <laughs> if you can't fill more than 300 <laughs> words. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is a whole week. I, would, I did a cover. I was about to say it was a cover a week or a month. <laughs> Like 300 words for the month would probably do me. <laughs> exactly. So this week's one, which is, uh, that was my kind of entry point, is the mom who has sex with her husband every night. Um, so this is a New York mom with a six and eight year old child, lives in the Upper East Side, super privileged, stay at home mom, has a nanny, um, husband works all the time. She goes to a therapist because she presumed that her, or she suspected that her husband was having an affair at some point. Um, and she had to go to a therapist after that because she never quite got over it. It's still unproven. There was some sexy talk, a bit of flirting on text that she found. Um, but it's anyway, it's unsubstantiated. So she's not sure where it ended. So the maid does everything. I say the maid now. What did she call her? She calls her the nanny, but the nanny was like cleaning, cooking, um, doing everything basically beyond, you know, the kind of uh, normal day-to-day stuff of childminding. Um, and it's fascinating. So when she met her husband, she says this in the intro, when she met her husband 10 years ago, he very early on said to her, a deal breaker for him in a relationship was that he needs sex every night. Okay. So she basically says they get through a lot of lube. Um, because it's it's very she says I'm not going to be horny or I can't fake wet and I'm not going to be horny and wet every single night so it's lube 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 so all of every night she's a Lara Lara lube so every night she you know they basically up to seven days they had six they had sex six nights so um 
and the only night that she didn't have sex, the whole house had a vomiting bug. So she got together. She got herself <laughs> together at the end of the day. So she got the herself, detail. Know, she got herself together at the end of the day of the vomiting bug day, and she's like, "Luckily, my husband didn't want to have sex tonight because I was too germy." So it's a very, it's a very odd dynamic. Of that's the deal. She keeps to the deal. She's a kept woman. She loves her family. She says they have a very healthy relationship. Um, and sometimes she loves having sex with him. Sometimes it's it's duty. Judy sex um, and it's just a god fa- that's a, really weird isn't yeah, it it's a fascinating read but then you kind of get into the other side so the divorced dad um, who's in his 50s goes on to match.com every single morning even though he's in a new relationship with another 50 year old woman who also has a kid and he's with her three years he still goes on to match.com every single morning the second he wakes up for about half an hour just to see what's out there it's a whole new world of sexing Wow. So there you go. That's what I've been I'm reading. so, I have to say, it's such a bummer, that, that white woman's story. I'm like, oh my God, this is really depressing oh, me. it's dark. It's really yeah, dark. It's yeah, yeah. And, and she also talks about, so the mom, yeah, the mom talks about It's very like Stepford wifey kind of shit, isn't it? Yeah. And she talks about, um, you know, she has all her, she has her Botox appointment during the week. Um, she's like, I'm just going to lay it out there. Yes. I'm going to get Botox. It is truly fascinating that people are living their lives like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And she talks, she actually does reference a few times during it, uh, you know, I went to ballet classes or whatever and, you know, I just encountered so many hollow women there who had brought their nannies and they would lead such shallow lives. I'm like, hello. <laughs> so anyway, it's, it's, it's like how the other half lives. It's like very, very kind of... Uh, it's a bit of hate reading. It's Actually, there you it go. Is, it's it so on <laughs> on brand for what we're discussing. And what I'm about to talk about from yes. what I was hate reading on the internet this week <laughs> is also a perfect segue into our main chat. So I was reading a lot. Well, first of all, I was reading about Burberry's kind of like latest blunder yes. there with the hoodies with the um, motif shaped like a noose. noose. Um. And it was a, an actual model who was walking in the Burberry show who called out um, this, like, really, really vile um, decoration, or what would you call it? Like, yeah, uh, detail on yeah. this kind of hoodie. And, um, you know, so obviously, like, it's just the usual, really, actually, just fashion so incredibly out of touch. Yeah. So the model's name is Liz Kennedy. And um, so she chastised the brand in an Instagram post, um, writing that suicide is not fashion, it's not glamorous nor edgy. Mm. And since this show is dedicated to the youth expressing their voice, here I go. Um, she addresses then her uh, her post to Ricardo TC and everyone working at Burberry. It's beyond me how you could let a look resembling a noose hanging from a neck out on the runway, which I, you know, I just like, it's not exactly like, yeah, I don't know a wow opinion to agree with that I'm no just like excuse. how I'm always fascinated by how these things that obviously go through such enormous development and have huge teams working on them yeah. how they get out into the world and um, yeah. so yeah also I think she said that she they obviously were deeply sorry then for the distress caused and they pulled it didn't they yes and they did in fairness agree they were insensitive and made a mistake 
and um, the designer uh, TC did try to say that it was inspired by a nautical theme <laughs> which I if you look at the image which so you can see on image.ie um, Aideen O'Connell's written a really good yeah. piece um, called Burberry Apologise for News Hoodie um, which will uh, feature in the show notes um, but it's a it's not in any other way nautical this um this outfit so it's a kind of uh very bad on color it's kind of like a biscuit colored hoodie uh you know the model looks you know well yeah, like sad. all models that. <laughs> and she's wearing a kind of a fur coat thing but it's not even the detail does not appear in the context of a nautical outfit no. you know what I mean so no. I think that was a real um, reach on the part of uh, Ricardo TC I think also wasn't Liz Kennedy saying that uh, she tried to bring it up behind the scenes so she tried to talk to the Burberry team yeah. and say that she was triggered or whatever else and she said she's not um, that that's you know she's not not a person who's kind of uh, very sensitive or easily triggered but they have had suicide in their family yeah so it's just yeah. something that she was sensitive to yeah and thought if she was triggered by it then you know people who have had even closer experience of it yeah and in the media as a whole like you know there is rules around discussing um suicide and yeah. you know a kind of a blackout on details yes um you know for for safety reasons yeah and for like you know yeah sensitivity reasons and things like that so just to see it there boldly hanging around this woman's neck uh is really yeah it's really jarring and so then like in the vein of like fashion blunders obviously (laughs) carl lagerfeld died this week and um there's been a lot of effusing online about the man he was yeah. and yeah, obviously he was a very interesting character but um, I read this uh, very good piece on Vox um, about Lagerfeld's long history of disparaging fat women uh, by Rebecca Jennings and um, she kind of deep dives into uh, yeah just his um, very antagonistic uh, kind of sentiment towards yeah. I feel really all women because yeah. I mean well like fat and fatter and less fat I don't know yeah. you know basically anything that was more than the uh, typical runway model size Zero, yeah. which is cons- I don't even know what is that in our sizing is that like a four or something it's, yeah, I, it's a four or a six I think um, so yeah I mean basically like you know he's it's a hotbed of really shitty quotes from him. No one wants to see curvy women. Um, you know, he said, oh, it's actually just such a gross rhetoric. But, you know, Lagerfeld said, you've got fat mothers with their bags of chips sitting in front of the television saying that thin models are ugly. <laughs> the world yeah. of beautiful clothing is about dreams and illusions. So it's just a really misogynistic um, reductive, yes, it's so reductive. reductive and joyless outlook. Yeah. Um. So uh, yeah, I highly recommend that piece on Vox. Yeah. Um. Very good. I mean, if you want to tear down the man after he's died, <laughs> I know. It's like definitely two very different camps actually when it comes to him because you've got people kind of like defending his kind of creative license and saying that he was hilarious and you know kind of said the unsayable 
always said the unsayable and also said what every other designer was thinking. Yeah, and the one thing is he did in fairness, like, well, not in fairness to him, because like, ugh, but he did give voice to like the very like true nature of the fashion industry. Yeah. You know, that nobody else would ever admit. Yeah. And obviously he kind of slightly operated behind this kind of Karl Lagerfeld persona. Yeah. Um, that I guess maybe he, uh, allowed him to kind of say those things and still stay in among, with the fashion establishment, do yeah. you know? He's like, um, he's like the ultimate mean girl. Yeah, I mean, he is just absolutely saying what every other fashion house is thinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. More or less. Which is pretty depressing. So thanks, fashion, as much as we love you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but he's definitely the old guard, and there's so much now, like, that's more exciting and yeah. more inclusive coming out in fashion. I think Louise McSherry actually put up um, a post on Twitter or tweeted or whatever uh, around his death and said, unfortunately, you know, his comments on like larger women or whatever else will be the only thing that she kind of remembers of him mm. and it's so true I think in the in the um, separating the man from his work from his art etc it's that whole kind of Woody Allen it's you know it's the problematic kind endless of, kind of debate yeah, yeah. yeah exactly of can you still wear somebody not that I'm going to be purchasing any Chanel anytime soon <laughs> when they're so problematic so you're not a hate watcher do you know what? I'm. I hate that you're not a hate watcher. Yeah, I'm, I watched so much absolute shite in my like twenties and thirties that I actually I think I have a very simple and suggestible mind. So even if I'm watching something out of irony, mm. eventually I start empathising with the characters. <laughs> I'm in, and all the irony is gone, and it's no longer a hate watch. It's just an addiction. Um. So yeah, I actually I have like a kind of. I, anything that I end up kind of even vaguely hate watching um, I eventually hate turns to love no well no it doesn't necessarily turn to love I just once I see it happening I have to just ban it from my life it's like the Daily Mail column of shame okay it's like uh Big Brother, all the reality shows. I'm just like, no, I'm going to get into this. So even though I'm hate watching, I think there's a bit of irony. Yeah, I'm just, I'm going to go deep soon. So I just need to get out. That's very healthy of you. <laughs> what about you, Sophie? I think I operate in a kind of a perma state of like hate lust, where <laughs> I, um, yeah, I hate watch, hate follow. I was saying I hate eat. My hate eating is old El Paso taco oh. meal kits. <laughs> Just friggin' like, what the hell are they? It's like a little sachet of MSG and a little kind of, I don't know, crispy. Yeah. There's no like relationship with. Is that a comfort eat though? Is it like a. I think it's no, because I think there's real indulgence chips. in comfort eating and like I just like you know profoundly love chipper chips, but yeah. the old El Paso meal kit's a complete hate eat. I'm just like, oh, it's just crap it's this is bullshit food on every level but I'm like nyan, nyan, nyan. Um, so yeah no I um I think yeah this kind of like sort of like pleasure in hating on stuff yeah has really kind of exploded in the last few years and like for example has. so the actual phrase hate watching um 
It's been attributed to um, a New York Times critic, Emily Nussbaum, sorry, a New Yorker critic, um, who coined uh, the hate-watching phrase in 2012. Yeah. Um, and I think it's obviously kind of like it's risen in time with binge-watching and that kind of, as I think that thing as well that's taken over where people kind of tweet in real time about the things they're watching. Yeah. So for example, like I absolutely love the Late Late Show hashtag on a Friday night. It's gold <laughs> on Irish Twitter. Um, you know, it's actually elevated the show yeah. like by having this kind of double yes. screen experience of it where you've got kind of the Twitterati, you know, just landing the kind of like pithy and acerbic tweets and, and then whatever's <laughs> unfolding <laughs> on the kind of usually fairly bananas kind of couch of the Late Late Show. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that's the only way it could possibly be digestible. <laughs> Just, well, yeah, okay, that's, that's mean. <laughs> um, so I was reading up on, um, I suppose, like, hate and outrage and judgment are all kind of intermingled sort of responses and so there's now a real kind of little section of uh, you know psychological research into the kind of outrage culture uh, you know that we're all kind of living in now and um, there's an author um, a PhD who called Terry Apter um, who's written a book called Passing Judgment and she talks a lot about this pleasure in the negative emotion Mm. which was really good because it helped me really identify too because I'm like what do I get out of this for example real hate watch for me is friends from college that show on netflix that i started into and i literally like just kind of grinding teeth watching two (laughs) series of it in about three days i was like these people are fucking awful and like oh i could see that joke coming a mile off and it was just like rah 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 and um so i just stepped out of that after about three apps but the thing is that it is genuinely a pleasure and an entertainment like it's there it exists with the hate okay so terry after kind of posits that the pleasure of strong negative judgment becomes so enjoyable that we actually seek opportunities to trigger it like we ferret out others crimes of omission (laughs) or commission so that someone for example compares a political movement to Nazism and then in return others are outraged by that comparison it's a kind of you know on and on kind of like an Escher painting of outrage judgment Escher drawing etch whatever he did Um, but that's I mean that's like the ultimate hate watch then would be Trump Exactly. He's got a whole bunch of hate followers, presumably. Yeah, but just everything, everything that comes out of him, every feature that's written, you kind of you don't want to read it, but at the same time, the little fingers like, oh, I've got to click it. You're in. Um, she says um, that outrage is contagious, and. she cites mm-hmm. studies that show that jurors who witness one juror's expression of outrage at a crime um, are undergo like a, a really notable shift um, that in may result in a more severe verdict. Right. And so it's interesting that and then kind of conversely, like kind of moderate responses can be contagious too. Like I suppose if you're like in a situation with someone who's kind of more of a centrist yeah. kind of calling for sort of you know leniency Calm or yeah, yeah yeah that can be contagious but I think that outrage is by sure by by far uh, you know the thing that catches fire on social yeah. media platforms like we've seen it again and again in the last oh, you know seven constant, years yeah. you know since um, I don't know since 
Justine, what was her name? Got off the plane in South Africa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you've been shamed. Justine Sacco. Justine Sacco. That's who it is. So that happened in 2012 uh, with Justine Sacco and her, uh, her oh, botched joke. I don't know what you want to call that. Yeah. Uh, that went viral while she was literally flying in a eight hour flight to, to, to South Africa yeah yeah and like as she was kind of cruising at altitude <laughs> her, her tweet was setting fire to her life um, yeah. so yeah she um, she just go on to say about how outrage and, and anger and hate are emotions that feed and get fat on themselves yeah. which I thought was such a great description of exactly what I do when I'm hate following or hate watching anything yeah. it's like I'm gorging on my own irritation <laughs> and and uh, it's interesting so she like says that we do basically feel quite like physiological effects from our kind of hate and outrage yeah. um, that we like shiver with disapproval and revulsion but at the same time we get this little like narcissistic frisson <laughs> which completely landed with me I was like oh my god yes that's completely true because when you're hating on something you're actually kind of probably positioning yourself in a superior, in a, in a superior moral yeah. position yeah. or um, yeah like I feel so strongly about this I must be right and things like that but I also wonder is it like you're a very emotional person aren't you like you're I mean I don't mean that in a negative way I just mean <laughs> she's backtracking because I'm now crying uh, yeah no I, I mean, really like, yeah. you kind of deeply experience emotions whereas I would say I, I would kind of be like emotionally benign I've come on quite a lot <laughs> but I, like it takes a lot to get me Riled. Outraged. Yeah. yeah. I just, I don't really connect with it a lot of the time. I'm just like, oh, like, what's the big deal? And then if somebody is outraged, outraged, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll try and respond to it. <laughs> you try and <laughs> yeah. muster the enthusiasm. Yeah, but it's, it's uh, I wonder if it's a lot of it is to do with that as well. Your emotional makeup as to whether or not you kind of react or have a capacity to hate watch. Yeah, I think that could yeah definitely contribute to it um i like i find for example if i'm I, i've never hate followed mm. but i find if somebody kind of recommends somebody and i really don't like their dicks or their you know like are, i'm kind of allergic to them like i definitely would be allergic to people but i just wouldn't follow them mm. but sometimes if somebody kind of tells me to kind of keep giving somebody a chance i i, I go in allergic but then i start feeling empathy for the person and i can't get that hate feeling i cannot get the hate i just can't dig into it <laughs> i don't know i just i i don't know I think and I know it's I know it's not hate. hate. Yeah, it's like it's entertainment. Um, yeah, I just can't find it. Anyway, I feel bad for you. <laughs> I um, I think though. Well, like what you've kind of described with kind of like something irritating you, but you still then find yourself feeling empathy and things like that. Um, I was reading another quite interesting piece that described this hating as a form of fandom. Okay. You know, which I did kind of enjoy because I think that that's something, say, that like with reality stars of today yeah. would encounter a lot, which is I've seen, like, for example, kind of big people on Instagram kind of acknowledging their hate followers and yeah. being like, hate followers, I see you. <laughs> and you know what? You're you're actually still paying my bills. So 
thank shout you. out to the hate <laughs> followers and I'm like that's that's hilarious um, so I was reading about this classical singer who um, was around in the kind of 20s and 30s in New York yeah. and she was like a notoriously terrible singer this isn't the Meryl Streep movie, is it? Actually, yes, Meryl Streep yeah. won an Oscar for playing her. <laughs> yeah. Um, sorry, the singer's name is Florence Foster Jenkins. She's and she, really wealthy and... Yeah, like was she was really big indulge. in high society. And like Cole Porter used to go and watch her sing. And like, even though she was like really notably out of tune and like known for being terrible, but people like were really drawn to it and drawn to her. And I think that's, there's like a kind of a vulnerability in that that people wanted and were attracted to. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that that is something I get with hate following sometimes where uh, there'll be a person like I just, they irritate the crap out of me, but I'm really hooked on them. And and you're kind of fond of them as well. Fond, yes. And like also I just suppose like we're just living in like a profoundly cynical age and like to just see somebody out and proud doing their thing, even if you kind of hate their thing, ultimately they kind of get you on side I yeah. don't know I just was intrigued that hate following has actually been around for, for nearly a century yeah there's also <laughs> the um, disaster artist have you seen that Tommy Wiseau yeah Wiseau, yeah um, which obviously James Franco played in a kind of reenactment of the kind of making of the movie last week so that's mm. l- or last week last year mm. that was in it that, I think that's one of the the kind of most notorious kind of hate watches in that it's considered to be the worst movie ever made in the history of like oh yeah the like so film industry the original um, movie is called the room and it's by Tommy Wiseau and he is a very strange character and basically the room was kind of uh, self-funded by means that people are still a little bit confused about actually Um, and yeah complete family project he wrote it he directed it he starred in it (laughs) there are a lot of lingering shots of his ass in it Um, (laughs) one of the weirdest sex scenes of all time and basically the room gained this like absolute cult following off the back of being the worst film of all time exactly and then ultimately it kind of it had a second life as this kind of like performance of irony for kind of like film goers in the 90s where they used to play it at big theatre houses and and then obviously yeah then it fell into the hands of James Franco who's obviously revived it into a new iteration of actually you know a mainstream Hollywood flick which is called The Disaster Artist and is really good even though I despise James Franco it's very good I love it Um, but yeah so it's yeah, it's interesting actually to bring that kind of like the irony side into the hate follower, the hate watch. Uh, yeah. Now I'm like, actually, I'm hate wearing these dungarees today because like <laughs> I'm absolutely wearing them kind of in an ironic fashion. I love them. Sophie's wearing a beautiful pair. Beautiful of, uh, pair of dungies. <laughs> of kind of square top dungarees. They're gorgeous. Well, thank you. But square it's Square tops. I don't know what other kind of dungaree, dungarees there are. They're very square. Um, yeah. Hate. I don't know. I feel sorry for you. I love to hate. Do you enjoy so, it? Do you? Would you hate? I never you? engage though with actual the kind of like online outright stuff. Yeah. Um. Because like I wonder like because I think there's a fine line between guilty pleasure, which I would watch a lot of YA stuff. Mm-hmm. I would kind of sign it off on guilty pleasure, um, like the kissing booth. Uh, you probably don't even know what that is. It's a horrendous American 
like teen movie 13 Reasons Why on Netflix <gasps> I really hate watch that and then yeah. that hate really solidified, in, solidified into full hate like yeah. I dropped the I couldn't watch the second series but yeah. I definitely yeah. I would have called that a guilty pleasure though as opposed to hate watch because I, w- I you know it's I think I stayed up until 4am one morning mm-hmm. watching the old 13 Reasons Why finishing it off just um, just shut up and listen to the tapes that's all I kept thinking all the way yeah. through that I was like just listen to the tapes and we'll be done with this but there's kind of guilty pleasure hate watching and then trolling it's like I think that's like a I think if like you're a, hate it's, watching it's you're trolling yourself yeah true, true. Um, yeah it's no I would never engage with the kind of pylons online or anything but I would just probably sit on a moral kind of high vantage point and watch the goings on you know like so that is clearly a form of like you know outrage orgasm yeah I think I've put my time in I'm, I'm too old now um I'm reading what are you reading? I'm reading, this must be like the most predictable thing in the world. I'm reading Beautiful Boy by David Sheff, okay. which is just coming out as a major motion picture. Yeah. Starring Steve Carell. Have you heard about it? No. Um, so David Sheff was a journalist and editor, I believe, and, and he wrote this book about his son's addiction um, mm. to methamphetamine. Oh, I've seen the... Um the trailer. It's been on my YouTube. Your uh, trailer, <laughs> Carousel. Yeah, it's uh, Timothy Chamelay. Yes. Sorry, what's Chamelay? Whatever his name is. Timothy. Timothy. <laughs> Chamelay. He's beautiful. Um, it looks actually it looks incredible. The movie. So this is a very interesting family because the son is named Nick Chef, and he wrote a kind of companion memoir hmm. uh, called Tweak about his uh, methamphetamine addiction, and um, it's really gorgeous so far. I kind of. You know, when you're reading something you just know it's going to actually just rip you apart yeah but, well I obviously as we've already established feel things <laughs> very deeply um, I need a little bit of you or not at all but um, no, I'm really enjoying it so far yeah. yeah it's really really good and um, it's just I actually do I do enjoy a memoir about yeah. addiction Why else? it's an unusual <laughs> genre for I, me to be so latched on to but I love an addiction memoir yeah but I also think there's there's obviously great hope at the end of that if he has also released a memoir it means at least he's survived we hope right I know but I think maybe that is why we're so drawn to these stories is the kind of lack of resolution because mm. as much as he is clean currently and made it you know yeah, it's a day at a time, I guess, and yeah. maybe that is why it feels so um, immediate always with these kind of narratives that you just yeah, like obviously I hope Nick yeah. Chef, the um, the son really does sound like a really unique person. The dad is, you know, they're you know they are. It's a unique collection of characters, although yeah. they are real people, and it's like a lovely insight into. Um, their into their world and like and into the world of um, the dad yeah the dad is a journalist yeah. yeah and like I think his their story first kind of um, caught like national attention in the US when he wrote an essay for the New Yorker um, yeah. about like loving his son who's an addict and um, I just think this is a hugely brave thing to do yeah um, see I, I would say like if you're speaking about your own 
experiences that's kind of one thing Mm. but like for him to be so revealing about his son albeit with his son's blessing it's still such a huge responsibility but like he also I just think like I know that the response to that piece was massive from other parents Um, and obviously like in a way like um, actually David Chef kind of phrases it um, in the book that he kind of ruefully says that his son has always been a trailblazer even right down to his methamphetamine addiction, which came slightly before the kind of massive national crisis that the kind of US is now in. And um, so obviously it's a story that just must speak to like just the hundreds of thousands of families. And uh, yeah, so I'm absolutely loving that. And then the other book I'm reading is Vagina, A Re-Education by Lynn Enright, who is the Irish journalist who um, obviously was former editor of The Pool. I know, gutting. And um, yeah, R.I.P. The Pool. And yeah. um, so it's uh, it's brilliant. It's kind of um, a slightly academic text with a lot of kind of personal perspective. And Enright's style is just really readable on the kind of academic side of things. Yeah. And then obviously she's very kind of giving of her kind of story of womanhood on the memoir side of things. So mm-hmm. really enjoying it. And like in terms of a re-education, like I learned something on page four. Really? Yeah. I was already learning. So what, like, what, what did I learn? What tidbits are you taking away <laughs> so far? Um, I learned that the hymen is not at all what I pictured it was. <laughs> Do you know the way you're I kind of it as like a, literally like a, like of, a like, seal to be exactly, punched through? Exactly. Yeah. So she kind of disabuses us of a, a fair lit. few misconceptions that we've been, um, you know, ingesting. Oh, <laughs> Thanks okay. to a very strange and skewed idea of what sex education should be for women. Yeah. So it's a really uh, brilliant read so far. I'm loving it. Great. So there you go. Deadly. Well, I've actually read two books in the last two weeks. Snap! <laughs> yeah, well, you're all, you read like two books. No, I meant, I meant like I've got two books, you've got two books. Um, no, one of them I'm not going to review, but one of them was Hunger by Roxanne Gay, oh, which I, yeah. I had actually just finished. Mm. Um, I'd started ages ago and I finished it, um, which was interesting. And the second one was Adele by Leila Slimani. Oh, we don't know that one. You haven't heard about this. Yeah. So, Slimani wrote Lullaby last year. Yes. Have you, have you read that? I cannot. Okay. So I just know that I can't. It's <laughs> okay. so terrible. So I really enjoyed Lullaby, yeah. uh, which is basically about a murderous nanny. That's yeah. no spoilers because you kind of get that on page one. Um, and I actually really enjoyed that. I enjoyed the kind of the suspense, the um, l- like there was a lot of kind of delayed gratification. And when I say gratification, it's the wrong word because obviously there is no gratification <laughs> when it comes to... It's kind of a payoff. Yes, it's a payoff, exactly. Yeah. Um, but it's it's just she it, it's steeped in a kind of darkness. The whole story is just steeped. You, you're tense reading it. Um, but at the same time, it's not. She doesn't use any of the kind of common tropes of you know. There's no kind of shocks or big reveals or you you know what. Or the kind of the yeah. Way. So it's just the build up. The late plot reversal. Exactly. Yeah. That. Um, so I, I really, really enjoyed that. So, uh, and I've kind of, I had read some amazing reviews of Adele. Um, so the first thing I will say is, who am I <laughs> to kind of not say that it's amazing? But 
uh, I, yeah, I had a lot of questions. You were a woman with <laughs> yeah. opinions and thoughts. Exactly. I had a lot of questions uh, and, uh, well, not actually not even questions. I just couldn't properly get into it. And mm. I think where um, Lullaby was... Uh, kind of suitably removed you didn't really need the, the characters to be they were well drawn but in very kind of subtle ways um, but the story was kind of propelling you on Mm. So Adele is about um, a kind of a Parisian woman um, who's probably in her, I think she's in her mid to late 30s um, and she's a sex addiction. So on the very the very first page opens or the kind of very first sentence is uh, I've been a good girl this week. So it's, you know, she hasn't had sex in a week. So she's leaving her son and her surgeon husband um, and she immediately goes and kind of seeks sex because she hasn't had it for a week. Mm. Um, and she's looking for, you know, kind of um, not necessarily violent encounters, but she's looking to be taken. So it's it's apparently Slimani wrote it during the Dominique Strauss, Strauss can trial. Mm. Obviously the former head of the IMF who's alleged rapist, he was hosting orgies, he was accused of um, underage orgies, he was, ac- he was accused of pimping girls out to all of his kind of business associates. Mm. I mean really kind of seedy and dark and she wanted to this is apparently in terms of Slimani's motivation, she wanted to reverse the power structure. Mm-hmm. So present a female sex addict I think Strauss Kahn said that he was kind of addicted to sex and couldn't help himself so it's it's it kind of charts Adele through kind of very sexual liaisons she kind of sleeps with her best friend's lover of 10 years um, she sleeps with her um, husband's co-worker um, like anybody actually anybody and everybody wherever she can she's just like a constant kind of insatiable thirst and, mm. and it is addiction mm. so uh, you know I suppose that's what people have responded to uh, and I just felt I, I, I also sorry it's been compared to Madame Bovary okay yeah of, um, yeah but not in the I haven't read Madame Bovary well I read it when I think I was about 16 so I can't kind of remember much of it but it was the um, the text that Madame Bovary is reading is what it's compared to as opposed to Madame Bovary and the kind of beautiful telling of that tale yeah. it's more the kind of the salacious text that she was reading constantly kind of throughout her book um, and other people have said that, say, for example, as a kind of sex tale or a kind of chronicle of sex addiction, nine and a half weeks is a much better comparison story, okay. for oh, example. Right. So I think the kind of the my issue was Adele. Not that she has to be any crack, but she was no crack at all. <laughs> so there was just this, I felt she was very two dimensional. Like she was never fully realized as a character. Mm. Her husband wasn't realized. None of the characters were realized. So there was this kind of like... Um, what would you call it? Like, um, uh, I don't know, like a, just a lack of kind of character and personality that was kind of just propelling everything. Mm. Um, so I never fully engaged with them. And I think that was, that's what I had a kind of problem with. I just didn't find anybody kind of in the book compelling. I didn't really give a shit what happened to her. I didn't care if she kind of, if her marriage survived or didn't survive. Mm. You know, all, yeah. I just didn't give enough of a shit about anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, and but you know some people rave about it and then I've kind of I went back on online afterwards having finished it having only read glowing reviews and I did kind of find that it's uh, in fact very polarizing mm. so it's, it's a love hate kind of book I right think. yeah um, so I probably I probably would recommend it for the read because you don't know I suppose which camp you're going to be in um, 
and she's brilliant at what I think Slimani is brilliant at is um, charting the kind of mundanities, mundanities and kind of the 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 grossness and uh, what would it be like the the kind of the the toxicity of the ordinary okay yeah. and how you're you just kind of you're just going through the motions every day mm. and how life is always the same she's brilliant at charting that and the first kind of maybe 20 percent of the book is that yeah and kind of gripped and then i think it just in my opinion trails off after that right so there you go Quite after <laughs> whatever my opinion is worth, I think, yeah, she's no crack at all. No crack. Mine is crack there. Mine is crack. And I mean, I don't know if you could actually complain that there's no crack in hunger. <laughs> well, but it's brilliant. What did you think hunger, of it? Hunger, I thought was absolutely amazing. Um, so this is Roxanne Gay's, Roxanne Gay's. Now, like, memoir of her body. What really struck me with Roxanne Gay is that she does, where you're talking about kind of when people write about suicide, that there is this kind of um, like blackout in terms of how, why, what happened. Like it's just a kind of, it's understood. And it's, I would say the same thing uh, would generally be the case for say anorexia or eating disorders where... Mm unless you're on kind of very niche sites they don't talk about their methods in terms of how they lost weight or what they did or how they vomited whereas Roxanne dedicates a whole chapter to it now I think this yeah. is kind of pre-blackout but I did think it was interesting she talks about how she kind of loses how she loses weight how she purges yeah and I was like god that could be anyway that that was the only thing that um stood out from a negative point of view but I it's amazing it's absolutely amazing I mean she's, she reads it as well that was an audio book so I listened to that I yeah to her that's it I it. listened to it as well yeah I mean, and it's I really harrowing voice, but I <laughs> yeah it is harrowing yeah but I love her voice so you're kind of you're constantly uh, you know she's a really interesting personality as well she is very like kind of contained and measured in her delivery yeah and that is like a huge contrast to the kind of like wild and kind of vicious stories that she's telling about yes. her life yeah which is really interesting and really cool I think actually um, yeah. about that experience of listening to her read it and how she's processed it all yeah at this point. yeah and yeah. um, but it's a very very tough read I found yeah. um there's a very violent um rape described and that yeah. is I was just really painful um, she was so reading as well, and yeah. she was so young and like the kind of fallout from that she just um, depicts like really really evocatively yeah. and um, and also I do I think one of the other real standout moments was um, her family have kind of waged a bit of a campaign with her to undergo gastric band surgery yeah well she's saying that she her camp her family have had her on diets and programs and with personal personal trainers since she was about 14 yeah but do, the scenes where she goes to a, uh, a like a clinic for an information day and she goes with her dad as yeah. far as i remember sorry it's been a while since i listened to it but um yeah she does and she goes into a lot of detail about uh, the ramifications of a surgery like that and i've actually never seen it laid out anywhere in such detail of like yeah. what people are um, signing up for if they undergo a treatment like that and it's a life altering permanently life altering thing yeah. um, that I like you know obviously you don't know your privilege that's when you're privileged but like I'd never um, understood 
at that side of that surgery and how dangerous it can be and oh loads of that and it was just like I think that Roxanne Gay writes incredibly well um, Mm. and very openly about uh, a kind of a a battle she's waged with herself about her her physical uh, body and things like that yeah and Um, she's never written from a place of having achieved uh, any kind of um, resolution, 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 yes, or kind of acceptance. Yeah, it's very much not acceptance, Which and it's very interesting. Yeah, because she has been criticised by the the kind of uh, fat acceptance advocates for mm. kind of being fat phobic and for kind of yeah. I suppose um, perpetuating this notion that we need to be smaller and. Um, yeah thinner and gastric bands kind of should be part of the solution and all that kind of stuff so i mean it is it's it's re- and she denies that absolutely she's like i'm absolutely not fat phobic but i'm also i don't have to kind of be part of a movement i'm just talking about my personal story that's it i think that she's very like co- comfortable in a gray area in a gray yeah. space about it all and like she's not going to be a spokesperson yeah and um, she has subsequently since writing the book undergone the surgery oh has she yeah I I oh i think i actually did so she wrote an essay in, year, uh, in for medium um or she maybe it appeared in the new yorker, yorker as well yeah but i haven't um heard any thing that much more from her since i mean obviously presumably she's doing a lot of recuperating and things yeah. like that but uh it's also it's yeah. also very interesting from her perspective where she's talking about she obviously was you know, she had a horrendous experience when she was 12 years of age. And so much of uh, kind of her weight gain was building herself up, being stronger, bigger, being able to like mentally Mm. being able to kind of fend off any uh, like a kind of making herself unattractive to society and be being kind of strong and sturdy enough to fend off any potential future kind of attacks. So it's 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 she traces that really well, I think, is, is kind of just the root of everything that went yeah. wrong. Yeah. In terms of, of where she's at. Of her, you know, how yeah. she kind of sees it anyway. Yeah, yeah. she sees it. Yeah, absolutely. It's a cheery note to, uh, uh, yeah. to wrap up on. <laughs> on that. <laughs> um, thank you so much for joining us and we'll hopefully see you next season. Yes. Thanks so Th- much for being there for listening. See you next time. Bye.